today's podcast is easily one of the most interesting one anyway, in my opinion, that I think I've ever put up. Um, and what I'm going to talk about today is basically my journey through management consulting and how I've made some of the decisions I've made, how I've made some of the mistakes I've made, and how it led me all the way from sort of high school all the way into partnership and, you know, how I then left the partnership thereafter. And I think the interesting thing here is that the reason I'm... I've prepared this podcast is very simply because over the last few days I interviewed a very very um, interesting young lady um, from the United States doing a PhD and she was interesting because she's from Shanghai in China and very very impressive I must say and one of the things that impresses me about some of the most impressive candidates is that the ones who are really outstanding always think they are never that good so I spoke to this young lady and she was talking to me about her background in her life and I, I could see from the questions I was asking her that you know she was a very very capable person definitely she would go very far with some help and one of the things she told me just struck out and jumped up it was so un- unusual, the statement she made, that I was very surprised by it. And I asked, you know, why she moved around so much? Why is she so ambitious? Why is she, why is she done so much with her life at such a young age? And she told me, well, I'm trying to get away from my mother, which I thought was really amusing. And I obviously continued the conversation to understand what she meant by that. And obviously, she had her reasons for saying it, and it made perfect sense to me. But what it pointed out to me was how the the lives we live when we're sort of teenagers and younger, play such a big role in the decisions we make later. And what I find with so many candidates is that, for one thing, they forget about the influence their early lives have had on the subsequent decisions and the decisions they will make. And they also try to to erase that. I, I know a lot of candidates who, for the first time, are going to study in the United States, Europe, Canada, and so on. They try to become too westernized. They try to hide some of the decisions they've made in their past because it doesn't conform to our de- our version of what um, society is. So the point I'm trying to make is that the lifestyle you live when you are young, the values you develop when you are young play a very big role in the way you make decisions. And I wanted to show you that through my life to explain to you that when when you are building your profile and you're you know, developing your responses to questions and so on, it's important for you to understand the value system you developed when you were young. And... Um, how that influences you because it does influence you in a very big way and if you if you plan this well and if you do this well you can come up with very sincere stories but also more than that in fact far more important than that you can understand yourself and understand how to make the right decisions as you develop your career so I think the best way to describe this is talk about you know, how I've made decisions and I'm going to be very um, obviously confidentiality clauses apply with all the firms I've worked with so I'm going to have to find a way to describe things without giving away too much but I'm, I'm going to go into a lot of detail in certain areas to explain things to give you a feel for what I went through right I think I can give enough detail without divulging any secrets here so maybe at the beginning right let's start at the beginning so I grew up in a in a you know although I ended up living a very good life I didn't start off in a very good life I mean I grew up in a in a family that was um, living I think near the poverty line you know something like six kids um, my father worked in a factory uh, my mother didn't work in a factory. My mother didn't have. She, I think she finished maybe four years of um, of of junior school. No high school. My father never went to high school as well. He worked in a factory, you know, and he spent his whole life working in that factory. I think in 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 the time that I was able to comprehend what a salary was, I think he may have only received an increase, something of like twenty dollars in that entire time. So the bottom line is that. 
they took care of about six kids, two adults, on a salary of about, I think it must have been about $500, $600 today, US dollars, right? That was a monthly salary at their peak. Sometimes they would get more, you know, 550 a month for overtime and so on, but pretty much it was at the peak, stable peak was $500, and obviously when I was younger, it must have been a lot le- lower than that. I think a couple of things that stand out for me in my early, uh, you know, life is that I remember w- once looking at my father's credit score, you know, the credit score you get when you buy things on uh, uh, credit, and I didn't understand it at the time, but later I understood he had what is probably the highest credit score you could possibly have, you know, and what struck me later, it only hit me later, is was here's a guy who was earning $500 a month at the maximum, obviously he was earning a lot less when you're taking care of kids who are breaking things around the house and so on, but these guys had been able to maintain the highest possible credit score imaginable. I mean, that takes a lot of determination. I do remember my parents, you know, many nights planning on how they would pay their bills because for them it was just, they couldn't live in a world where you didn't pay your bills. You know, it was just not possible for them. You know, today I see people deciding, oh, you know what, I can't, I don't have enough money, I can't go out with my friends and I'm just going to ignore this bill. My parents never did that. They paid every bill on time. And at the time, it meant very little to me. But later on, I, I really understood the, the, you know, the implication of what they were doing. I mean, you know, no formal financial training, no real financial literacy, no high school education. Um, my parents, both my parents, could read and write, but they weren't the best readers and writers. But they could do it, right? And they understood financial literacy. They were financially literate. And you know, people talk about. Um, introducing financial literacy programs into the curriculum for high school students today. And I think to myself, but that's not what makes you financially illiterate. It's your value system at the end of the day. You need to you need to be a kind of person who determine who decides that if you owe someone money you will pay it on time. It's just no way around it. You know, debt bankruptcy is not an option. It is an option, but you will choose not to make it an option. So those are all interesting things. But the one thing that stands out to me out of all incidences when I was young is that we lived in a really bad house. I mean, it was well, not very bad, but it was not great, and it was very small for six people. Um, it was something like a three-bedroom place. Yeah, three bedrooms, if I remember correctly. And my parents decided to take a loan to extend the house, to make it better, basically. And the way the system was working, because of my father's financial position, uh, the company he worked for, had a program whereby they would stand in as a, as a guarantor, right, of the loan. And they did that, and everything was going fine. And I remember very clearly an accusation was made against my parents that they were using the money um, to buy, I think it was alcohol or something like that, you know, it, the, it a very conservative company, so you weren't allowed to do those things, you weren't allowed to buy alcohol and so on. So the point is, these accusations were made, and you know the way it works in the West is, if an accusation is made, you've got to go through the process of defending yourself. Now, I, I know my parents, but I don't think my father's ever had alcohol. He smokes a lot, but he's never had alcohol his entire life. I don't think my mother's ever had alcohol. Anyway, well, anyway not that I can remember, and I was home pretty much a lot. I mean, they were, they were good parents. So these accusations were made, and I remember the, the, the feeling of having to go through a horrible process of having to, to defend yourself because you have no leverage, right? The company is the guarantor. They have your salary. They have your employment. I mean, if at any time they feel you are stonewalling them, they could end everything. So it is a very humiliating process to allow someone, an auditor, to go through everything, visit your home, 
look at you know basically count the number of bricks you have to make sure that all the numbers balance it was humiliating it was a horrible experience and the, and the, the, the image that remains with me is is of uh, you know two i think parents who may not have been perfect but they were doing things by the book but having to humiliatingly justify themselves to someone right Th- that image stays with me forever no matter what i do afterwards I, that image always comes up and says you know i never want to be in that position again so those events at a very young age i think shaped me in terms of um, my value system how i would do things how i would spend money where i wanted to go in life and so on and in my family i mean we were you know in the history of our family no one had gone to university so if you look at my parents grand my parents parents my parents grandparents great grandparents great great grandparents no university education so of the child of the uh, six children my eldest sister was the first to go to university and it was difficult for my parents to send her because while she was intelligent she wasn't you know off the charts intelligent so she she struggled for the first year she didn't have any funding my parents had to put up everything it was a lot of it was very difficult for them to save the money they had to take out loans and it was a it was a nightmare process right it's only when she got to second year of her engineering degree that she done well enough and you know she'd won a scholarship and so on so but even by then you know it's just you should watch people who earn $500 a month trying to scrape together money to send their child to a fairly prestigious engineering school it's a horrible process especially when you part of the family and you know you've got no money to pay for things so it was a bad experience for the family we just didn't have the money to do it and when my turn came up there was a lot of questions whether this was the right thing to do you know we we could barely put together the money to pay for my sister to go you know what would happen if i went to university but as luck would have it i was a little bit different i was good at school i was really good um and i was naturally good at physics physics was one subject i've always been i would say exceptional at even at high school i mean i picked up physics concepts without even reading much you know as a kind of kid who when he was 10 years old he'd be watching open university um on television and watching the physics experiments and then replicating at home i was one of those children i remember my my uh, when i was I think 11 years uh, probably older i think it was 13 14 uh, 14 years old my high school physics experiment won first prize in the statewide fair so it was a it was a good experience for me right i was good at school even though we were not the wealthiest family i was really good at what i was doing physics came it was it was a gift you know most people they they learn math and they apply it to physics i was different i learned math to make me be better at physics i liked physics so much i i, I loved it i mean the, the concepts came to me so easily i'd read a book once just skim through it i would know everything which is kind of funny because i never grasped chemistry you know chemistry is something i could never get uh, i just didn't understand these things with electrons and protons and it didn't make any sense to me but physics was easy i mean eisenberg's uncertainty principle doing the calculations no sweat right so it's very good at physics but again you know when you when you come from a family near the poverty line or on or below depending on the month you don't make decisions based on what you're good at you make decisions on based way on where you can find a career so at that time you know, the big careers the things that paid a lot of money were obviously a uh, um, medical school um everyone went into medical school if you were smart and you needed to make money uh becoming an accountant was also big becoming an engineer was big so I decided to pursue 
physics because I loved it, and I thought to make my parents happy, I would pursue, I become a chartered accountant, you know, which I would pursue both, and I'd see which one would work out. So, the interesting thing about this is that, although I was very good at school, I wasn't the best student. I was probably ranked third in my high school, maybe second depending on the month, but I was definitely not first. And there was one particular student who was just outstanding. I mean, this person was off the charts outstanding academically. And we were competing for the same scholarships, right? We're competing for one scholarship to study the sciences, another one to study chartered accountancy. And we went for all of the same interviews. We competed against each other. And I was pretty sure I'd lose against her because she was very good. But a funny thing happened in those interviews, right? When you're sitting across from you know, this panel of eminent scientists or eminent chartered accountants and you're discussing your profile, they're not asking you to calculate Eisenberg's uncertainty principle. They're not asking you to work out, you know, the LIFO, FIFO, whatever that rule is and so on. They want to know who you are as a person and they test some of your academic ability. But, and I learned this then, that what you know is less important than how you say it. And one thing that I was very good at is my, I think anyway, was my ability to be very comfortable with people and make them very comfortable with me. So I'd get into the room, I'd shake everyone's hand, call them on a first name basis, and make them make it a fun experience. I'd make it an enjoyable experience. I wouldn't sit there and be all terrified. I was very good at that. And the irony of that situation was that I did win both scholarships. I beat out all the students and I won both scholarships. And then the funny thing is that while I won both scholarships, I found out about one earlier than the other. So if I had gotten the Chartered Accountancy Scholarship earlier, I would have taken it because, you know, I didn't know what management consulting was and I just needed to find a job that paid a lot of money and for me, Chartered Accountancy looked like it would pay a lot of money. So I was going to take it, but for whatever reason, they sent the scholarship documents to me too late, right? They, they accepted me first, but they sent it to me late. And because we were, you know, we had to travel to another city for the interviews, they couldn't get hold of me anyway. It was before the age of the cell phone, right? I had to travel to another city. By the time I got back, they couldn't get hold of me. But the physics scholarship documents arrived first, signed it, and that's how I ended up studying physics at university. And it, it, it was, you know, those in, all these incidences taught me the importance of, you know, it's not just being intelligent, it's, you have to be intelligent, but you have to be able to communicate. And you know, at a very young age, I learned the, the importance of being able to speak, the ability to articulate what you're trying to do, and so on. And I went to university, and I went to a university which is famous for scientists, not for business people. My university didn't produce business people. They produced famous scientists. In fact, I only realized this much later. In fact, when I was at Oliver and Bonaccini's a uh, few weeks ago, I ran into a guy who sat a few tables away from me in my physics class. And we got to talking, and I only realized after I spoke to him that at least six people from my group, from my particular class, ended up becoming partners in management consulting firms, you know, which is kind of ironic, and we obviously stay in touch now, but most of them went to McKinsey, you know, very, I think only one went to BCG, and I think one went to Bain, but the others went to uh, McKinsey, and that's the interesting thing, you know, I didn't know that then, but at the time, and it still is, my school is famous for physicists, and... I studied physics. And I think the interesting thing about this is that while I was studying physics, I didn't attend many physics lectures. I can assure you of that. In fact, I remember for one of my physics year and exams, I, was a, I arrived to write my paper and the head of department looked at me like, you know, am I in the wrong place? And I said, I'm here for my exam. He gave it to me. He still looked at me. Then he came around and said, are you sure you're in the right class? And I said, yep, I take the physics uh, second year exam. So. 
The point is I spend all my time with the uh, business students, all of my time with the business students. In fact, um, I used to go to the physics, um, uh, uh, not the physics, to the accounting and the economics lectures held for the MBA students and also for the undergrad students. And I sit in them because all my friends were either from the MBA program or from the accountancy program. And I would give some of the tutors a really hard time. You know, I'd debate them some of the concepts they're putting forward. And one particular tutor, well, she was a, she was a PhD, but she was running the tutorial program, was really upset with the way I was debating her on trickle-down theory. And she came to me once and said, you know what, you're one of the most difficult students we have, but I've never seen you submit a paper. And I think that if, unless you submit a paper for marking, no matter how well you do in the exam, you're still going to fail this course. And then I pointed out, I'm actually not in your class. I just come here because I like the debates. But the, the moral of the story is that for a very young age, I knew that while I was good at physics, I was not really going to build a career in physics. And I really enjoyed going for those MBA classes. I really enjoyed attending the undergraduate economics uh, debates. I enjoyed the accounting debates, you know. Accounting, which is kind of a you know pedantic subject, delving into the minute details. And I would debate these things with people. And I was good at it. I enjoyed it. I actually had a very good style of speaking, and I managed to build those skills. Unfortunately, you know, by this stage, you can only attend so many accounting and economics and uh, management classes before your physics grades start suffering. So my physics grades were suffering. So the scholarship committee, they have this meeting every year where they you know, bring you up front, and they talk to you. So I was a bit worried that maybe I could lose my scholarship, because my average had dropped from about 95 to about 92% out of 100. Still high, but you know, you're competing for quite a prestigious scholarship, so you're not sure who you're up against because the scholarship needs to be renewed every year. So I'll go for this dinner. Very nice hotel. Grades never come up. Again, you know, one thing that surprises me is that when people look at you, they don't look at you as a grade unless you make them look at a grade. If you've got nothing else to offer, they'll look at you as purely a grade. So I had this wonderful discussion with the scholarship committee explaining to them how much I've learned and how I've really used the first year as an opportunity to broaden my horizons. I know I'm good at physics, but I've attended other classes to to add in additional um, uh, knowledge to what I was doing. And the scholarship committee asked me very clearly, but you know, uh, why would you do that? I mean, you want to be a physicist. Why would you want to attend economics class? And I said, well, you know, not only do I want to be a physicist, I want to manage a team of physicists who do great things. And to do great things, you need money. And to raise money, you have to be able to think like a businessman. And I mean, that just kept the scholarship committee really quiet. And they're very happy with it. And they renewed my scholarship and so on. Right, so again, you know, one one of the recurring themes that I've seen is is the fact that it's not enough to be smart or even to be average. You've got to be able to communicate very clearly what you're trying to achieve. And very clearly, for president of the student council for the university, you know, I was up against some hectic people there, you know, popular, much more popular than me. I was, I was kind of a scientist in many ways. I was friendly with people and I was quite of outgoing, but I was a scientist. I mean, I would sp sometimes spend the whole day in the library sitting in the bottom between the shelves and reading the latest journals on physics. That's what I used to do. In fact, there was a, you know, because I used to do that so often, I would buy two pies, I would go to the library, I would sit down, drop all my stuff down, just sit and take notes and read the latest stuff, that I ended up saving so much money for my scholarship that when I started working, actually, for the first six to nine months, I didn't have to spend my salary. All my scholarship money, I still had it. But that's a different story. We will we'll get there eventually. So anyway, I was not very popular, but I remember sitting at a bar with the two guys I was going to run against, and I managed to talk them out of running against me. I managed to convince them on the merits of running both the marketing arm and the financing arm treasury for the student council. And it's another moment that stands out for me, is that if you can communicate well, 
you can mitigate risks. It all comes down to the way you communicate. I mean, it, and you, you see this in consultants. The way we communicate is very different from the way everyone else communicates. So that was quite amazing for me to get these two very popular guys. I mean, really popular guys on the rowing team. One played baseball. Really, really popular guys to step down and take on these two roles. And they, this basically allowed me to win the presidency by default. They were really the only competition I had. We had two other people running, but they were never going to get any votes. So I won, not by a landslide. I was probably the the um, the only the only choice people could vote for. And I became student council president. Again, it's all about communication. A particular incident stands out for me. We once invited um, a large, let's just call it a large, northwestern brewer to our campus to host an event. And they brought all this alcohol and beer. That's the reason we invited them, right? And we they it sent some of the executives to talk to the university, uh, to some of the students about their business and so on. And they saw it as a chance to market their business, to speak to students, and we saw it as a chance to you know bring across a lot of free alcohol. And uh, things didn't go very well there. I mean things went a little bit out of hand because what happened is that badly planned. A lot of students didn't attend the talk by the executives. I think only like ten people showed up. Most people went over to the um, main auditorium and there were all these ice trays with beer in them and most people just stayed there. So obviously the executives were not happy about it. They were very unhappy and it became an incident at the university because the um, the brewer is a large benefactor of the school and it reached all the way to the student pre to the president of the university. It became an issue, right? The dean's office became involved and so on. But I decided to preempt the situation by writing a letter of apology and putting it out on the system, you know, plastering it over the university and also uh, getting it into all the student accounts and also sending it to the executives. I spent half a day preparing that letter of apology because I knew that if it's, a, if it's an insincere letter of apology, it's going to hurt us. If it's a weak letter of apology, basically this, the firestorm that started with the dean's office and spread all the way to the chancellor's office and so on is just going to continue growing, um, and the president's office and so on, and the registrar, and, you know, everyone was involved. So I spent half a day preparing this really short letter of apology, one page, and I put it out in the system. And I remember the, um, the um, head of the department coming to me and saying, you know what, that is one of the best letters of apologies ever seen. Uh, you know, did you write that? And I said, yep, I did that this morning. Well, obviously, I did a lot of research, but I didn't copy it from anyone else. But again, it taught me the importance of communicating. No matter how bad a situation is, if you are careful in what you communicate, how you communicate, you understand the pressure points involved, you can very, very easily mitigate a very precarious situation. So anyway... I'm not going to spend too much time about university and high school, but those are the defining moments of my life. You know, intelligence is one thing, but you've got to be able to communicate it. Otherwise, you end up being a nerd sitting in a lab somewhere and playing with your slide rules. So, I obviously, going into my final few years at university, I had some options here. I had the option of keeping my scholarship as a scholarship or converting it into a bursa scholarship. A bursa scholarship is a very unusual scholarship where you convert the amount of money you've taken out of your scholarship into a loan you owe the primary company that funded your, your scholarship. So for example, in my case, a, 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 a monumental oil company had funded my had been one of the funders of the scholarship program. There were other companies funding it, but they were one of the largest funders. So what I said is, okay, I want to convert my scholarship to a bursa scholarship. 
and what I want to do is that I would like to work at this company when I graduate. Now, obviously, I was still young. I didn't know what consulting was. You know, my school wasn't a target school for consultants, and this was a long time ago. You know, before the concept of target schools that arrived and so on. So I just wanted a job. So I took this and I said, okay, the company is very happy to have me. And you know, they they brought me in and they said, okay, why don't you do this, right? Uh, why don't you work for us over your summer vacation and then you go back to school and then you join us next year. So I went there for my summer vacation and I, I did a project very different from other people. While all the other scientists and PhDs and physicists and chemists were doing all lab experiments, I did an, I, my project was to work out the business case for developing a new oil shale gas field. Is it correct? Oil shale gas field. I think it was a gas field next to the oil shale, something like that. But anyway, I did the business case. That was my project. And very quickly, it made me realize that, you know what, while the scientific stuff interested me, I didn't want a career out of this. I liked the business stuff. And my business case was very well received, actually. And I remember a letter was sent from the CEO to the head of the university saying what a great job I had done. And, you know, my business case really opened their eyes to some of the things that they had overlooked. And, and the reason I, you know, my business case was so successful is I didn't do it sitting in front of a computer. I went out and interviewed everyone. I think I did like 100 interviews for that business case. I interviewed people in uh, the, the government offices, uh, the landmark offices. I interviewed people living in a, the communities around where they were going to um, start drilling for gas. I interviewed the scientists. I interviewed the suppliers. And I built this great composite of where the problems lay in terms of getting approvals because that's where the problem lay. It wasn't really about the returns. The returns were there. The company had the money, but it was the approvals. The approvals could delay us. And that was something the company hadn't really seen before. And, you know, you may think this is obvious, but this was not obvious at the time when I was doing it. Um, the technology they were trying to drill for was very unusual. The technology they were going to use was not and never been applied in the state. Um, so all these things were unusual and no one really understood the implications. So I, I didn't, maybe didn't provide a new uh, list of issues, but I definitely provided a new way of looking at it, right? And the company liked it. I enjoyed it. And by this time, I had met a few scientists who had actually worked at consulting firms, right? And had come back because they you know, missed the science lab. And they told me about consulting firms, and I applied. You know, applying to a consulting firm when I was around is very different from applying today. I mean, today you've got the internet, you've got these armies of people helping you, which means that the average is very high, and you've got to be a lot more I think better, but when I applied, it was a lot easier to get in. You had good grades, you're focused, you're ambitious. You'd get an interview, and I got an interview, right? I got an interview, and I went in for my interview. My first interview that I did with with a firm, I mean, I wasn't really prepared, so I got declined. But my second interview was no problem. Um, I joined. I spent one day, literally one day, preparing for my interviews. Now, please don't compare. Don't say that, well, I'm spending two months, you know, am I doing something wrong? Remember, the times were different then. You had to prepare for a lot less because the expectation is you'd knew, you'd know a lot less. Today, with this massive arms race for people to um, um, you know, acquire knowledge and case skills, you have to know a lot more. But when I was applying, you had to be logical, you had to be professional, you had to be a good communicator, you had to look like someone that could leave in front of a client, and you'd pretty much get the job, right? So the, the expectations were lower, but also the average was a lot lower. So all other things being equal, it worked out to being the same. So I joined management consulting, and you know what? I still had this huge bursa scholarship, which I could kick myself for, for you know, accepting. Because now what happened is that because it's a bursa scholarship, it's a loan that I owe the energy company. And I, if I had to leave, I had to pay them back that loan. So that was a bit of a conundrum. So I told the recruiter... And I told the partner, this is the situation, I'd like to join you, 
but I have this loan that I need to pay. So I want to lay my cards on the table before you make an offer. And this is the final round interview. Um, and explain that, you know, I didn't realize it would work out this way. But before we go ahead, I'd like you to be aware of it. They said, okay, no problem. Thank you for telling us. We'll think about it, but let's continue. I got the offer. They came back to me and they said, you know what? We will buy off your bursary, right? Um, you just need to remain with us for two years and you'll work it off, right? So, no problem. I did that. You know, I never even knew that was even possible, but apparently it is. So people, so they bought off my bursary, they took me in, and started working there. It was very easy for me to adjust, you know, the time. It was, I found the projects interesting, I found it compelling. I was doing well, you know, I was early stages, I was put onto a few projects, nothing intense, you know, I was still an analyst. Uh, I was running through things. I found it very easy to, to do the work. It wasn't mind-blowing for me. I built good relationships and so on. The one thing I did struggle with was networking, I think. I would, did not get along with my peers. I, I naturally got along much better with, um, with more senior people. So I got along very, very well with the partners. In fact, um, you know, if you, if you look at the way that particular office was structured, a lot of my projects were being done in the city, and not just far away from the city, but really close to the to the head office. So I was spending a lot of time in the office, and what I did is I was walking around a few days, and I hated having to look for a place to sit, and I hated sitting in a different place. It really annoyed me. So I was walking up and down, and I noticed that near where the partners sit, there's a lot of empty places for two reasons. Firstly, no one wants to sit near the partners for whatever reason, and secondly, they tended to keep extra spaces available if other partners were visiting. So I just sat down and made that my home. No one told me to move, so I just continued sitting there. And for like a couple of years, I used to sit in the same place. I used to leave my my stuff there um, and I used to come through it became like my de facto office I had a very good relationship for the with the partners so no one told me anything uh, obviously by having a good relationship with the partners you tend to have a very bad relationship with your peers no one ever tells you this but people tend to think you are like the partner's pet you're uh, too close to the top they can't share certain things with you you get cut out of your peer loop and I was very very bad at building peer relationships is one of my big regrets right Things were going well the first time. Anyway, I thought it was going well. But a really shocker for me was that after 12 months of joining, it's 12 or 9 months, one of the people with whom I was working was promoted um, to the next level. And it was surprising because this person I didn't feel was much better than me. The most surprising thing is I never saw it coming. And because of the shock of the promotion, I would say the next few months were what I call the dark years for me. The next 12 to 13 months were the dark years for me. My performance was not bad, actually. In fact, if you read my performance evaluations, people were saying I'm, about, I'm, a, I'm ahead of the curve. But psychologically, because I was not promoted with this person who I'd spent all my time working with and where I knew very well, and who I thought was I was a peer to in terms of performance, it surprised me a lot. And the, 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 the fact that I was so bad at misreading my own performance kind of threw me off. And the next few projects were an absolute disaster. I mean, I lost all momentum. I lost confidence. Um, I was put onto projects where I just struggled to deliver. I mean, projects that should have been easy for me. I really struggled to, to deliver on them. Uh, I remember that, um, you know, because I'd been cut off out of my peer network, I, I couldn't ask anyone for help. I mean, you'd, I'd ask people, but they wouldn't help because they considered me not part of their network. So pretty much, you know, the only people I could reach out to were the partners. And it's difficult to reach out to a partner when you're, um, when you're, when you're you know, struggling because you're not sure if they even want you there. I was also, you know, I was being put onto projects that were away from the office for some reason. So when you're away from the office, 
you're relying on all those people that don't like you. And it became a problem. I mean, people always talk about how collegial the team is. Yes, but these are people at the end of the day. If they think you're not part of the network, they're not going to embrace you as well as they would anyone else. So I was far away from the office. I was with the sharks, basically. And I actually heard the phrase once when someone didn't hear me. When someone thought I wasn't hearing them. Um, they used the phrase dead man walking. Because my, my career had tanked. I mean, I was going downhill fast. My projects were suffering. It was an absolute disaster. I remember one particular project... I was staffed with what I consider to be quite an incompetent manager. And this manager was totally mismanaging the project. Absolutely mismanaging the project, right? But all the other people on the project were close to her. The, the partner on that particular project was a partner I didn't know very well. He was from another office. He was also close to her. So that even though she was mismanaging it, no one ever knew she was responsible. And I didn't want to sound like a whiner and a complainer so I just tried to deal with it but at the end of the day she had spun it such in such a way that I was responsible for what had gone wrong and I remember this is the most humiliating moment of my entire career was when the client pointed out that you know he didn't say it directly but it kind of he said it in a, in, a, in a humorous way that I'd messed up the project and I had done nothing wrong in the project I mean I know I'd done nothing wrong she had mismanaged it. And when I say mismanaged, I don't mean it's something that's open for debate in the sense it's a subjective assessment. She had done something incorrect that caused a lot of problems for the client. She had made a change to some of the analysis that had caused a lot of problems. But she took something I was doing, made the change, and sent it back to me. It didn't tell me she made the change, so I had submitted it. And I assumed, you know, that she hadn't done anything because I told her, don't make any changes without telling me. And the next morning when I asked her, why did you do this? She said, no, I didn't have time to contact you, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, by that stage, my career was going nowhere. I mean, I had pretty much thought I had to leave because it was really bad. Performance reviews there were like, you know, less than um, less than good. I mean, less than average. And I remember getting feedback and the partner telling me very clearly, I remember this this is one of those things that stays with you forever. You know, you, you have a reputation and you pride yourself on your intellect. But I think this project raises questions about that strength. I mean, a very diplomatic way of saying that, you know what, we don't think you're that smart. So it was a very, very bad time for me. And I actually considered leaving. And it does when people struggle in consulting firms and they say, but you know, how do I make it? They always think that it's easy. That all these people that make partners have this flowing, right? Even the guy who finishes number one in his class. And in physics in my class, I finished number one. I mean, I didn't mention this, but the school wanted me to do my PhD. They, they tried to get me to do my PhD. Um, but I chose not to do it. But the point is that you are going to struggle. It's The question is whether you, you make that struggle visible or whether you deal with it. So I wasn't sure if I was going to stay. But one of the partners... Um, who had um, left the firm and went to McKinsey, came to me and said, you know what? He invited me for lunch because I knew him very well. He was a, We were very close. I mean, it's one of the reasons I had, um, you know, um, sat next to all the partners. He said, look, you know, you, we want people like you. Um, so whatever decision you want to make in the next few months, you must understand that don't make any hasty decisions. I don't think you should move. Either I'm coming back to the firm or if I stay... I would want you to move with me. I thought that was a great affirmation of you know what I was um, of my capabilities, and I was actually very happy to have that lunch um, because I was very concerned about my performance, where I was going, and so on. And I, I was very happy that the partner you know phrased it that way. And he was a quite a tough partner, you know, for him to say that you know he has a lot of um, 
uh, trust in my abilities. And yeah, you know, I mentioned, but you know, my performance hasn't been that great recently. He said, look, don't worry about it. There are personal issues involved here. So I think the firm knows that. And just as a, as a hallmark of how independent I've been since the incident with my parents, I made sure that even when we went to the most expensive restaurant in the city and we bought all the duck I paid for lunch, I do not like owing people things. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a value system I have up until this day. You know, I always believe in being independent. So anyway, the partner did return to the firm, right? And he made it a policy to put me into a situation where I could do things my way because I was different from everyone else. I didn't operate the way other people did. I was different. I, I had my own way of doing things. I tried to do things differently. I was very contentious. You know, I had attack assumptions. I was not a... How did I put it? I was not... I was a bit rough around the edges, some people would say. Communicates very well, but... Um, I was a bit rough with people. And when I say rough, I don't mean like I would brutalize them and call them names, but I would call out bad behavior. And you know how it works in most firms. If someone's your friend, you'd be you know easy on them. I was not like that. If I think someone had slacked off, I'd call it out. So anyway, the partner put me onto a project where we were doing a turnaround for a client. And I had to do the financial strategy. And he particularly put me with a manager where he said, look, you need to be with a manager who doesn't really was not part of this group that decides that you don't belong you don't deserve to be here but who's going to give you a chance to show what you're made of so he's a tough partner he's a tough manager he's not going to hold your hand but he's going to give you the room to show whether you can do this so anyway I really like this man. He's a great manager. I mean, this we got along so well. He'd come in with with he was a nice guy, you know. He he treated you like an adult. So basically what was happening on this project, we had one, two, three, four, five, I think five people. And we're dealing with a turnaround of a division within this monster company, right? It was a fairly large division, about $3 billion revenue comp uh, a division and quite important to the client. So we came in. Now, I was doing the financial strategy and my philosophy was I'll take absolute control of this. I'm going to ignore all the advice I get from people because if you're not on the project, you don't know what's happening. I'll do it my way. And, you know, it's... I'll just see what happens. And when I say my way, an example of how I did it is that at the end of the project, when I was presenting my feedback, you know, most people would present like 100 slides of the analysis they did. I only presented 10 slides. This is my presentation. This is what we're going with. The client loved it, right? A couple of other things I did, which was very unusual, is that I spent a lot of time to build allies within the company. So when I say allies, people who could feed me the financial information, never forget that this, despite receiving audited information from a client it doesn't mean the information is correct or it doesn't mean you're going to get the right interpretation so i ferreted out people who i thought were being were not being given enough recognition in the company and i found ways to um to bring them onto my side so at the end of the day i had this sort of internal brains trust within the client side working with me to do the financial analysis pointing out where there were problems and we found a, a, an amazing mix of things that we could fix there I mean, a few of the few of the people on my team from the client side my informal team ended up getting promoted as a result of the project the point is i remember very clearly we were in a we were in a uh, workshop with the senior members of the client team the whole team was there and i was going to present last because the manager thought look you know you've got the best stuff here so we're going to put you at the end so that you we can end off on a high note but you know despite what the manager had planned the client just climbed into us, started attacking the presentation. And I remember very clearly the manager coming to me and saying, you know what, you got to save us. So we're going to send you in early. you got to turn this around. So I went in and did my presentation. And obviously I had all the finance people there that I've been working with over the last few months sitting around. And 
presented for five minutes and the chief financial officer started climbing into the numbers saying this doesn't make a lot of sense what you're saying makes no sense and then a couple of the finance people I was dealing with you know stepped up and said you know what actually we, we checked the numbers they're audited they make sense and this is what he's actually telling us and this is why it's different from the numbers you are reading and this quietened down everyone so I ended up presenting for an hour, although I only had like five slides, but an hour because the board was very interested in what I was, no, sorry, not the board, the, it was the OPCO. The OPCO was very, the operating committee of the client was very interested in what I was saying. And we had this long ranging discussion about, okay, if this is what the numbers are saying, what are our options? And we ended up having this big strategy discussion which I facilitated. The team was very happy at the end of this. The manager was more than happy. Out of that workshop, he gave me even more rope. So basically, even though I was meant to be running the financial strategy for the project, I was pretty much running the strategy. I was running everything. You know, I would tell the guy doing the organizational design, okay, this is what the numbers are telling us. This is what the strategy is telling us. This is, I think, the areas of deficiency we need to mop up with the organizational design. But the point is, I became the centerpiece of the project. An enormously successful project for the uh, for the client and for the firm. It it changed my career, right? And a couple of things I learned out of that project is that firstly, I'm going to remain in control of everything I do. Second, I'll do it my way and ignore advice. I came to rely on a few people who I thought were giving me sincere advice. The rest of the people I thought would just give me advice because they wanted to be polite. And I became a lot tougher in terms of performance. Now, because of that attitude, I continued being promoted and promoted until I became partner, right? I'm going to talk you through some of the specific things I did that made me different from other people and why it made me different from other people. The one thing, I tried to not come across like a consultant. I tried to connect. And if, and if an audience was very different, I tried to shock them into paying attention. For example, let me give an example of something I did when I was a partner. We were presenting to a large conservative agricultural company in the United States. I mean, these guys were conservative. They were... You know, their, their fathers had been barons of land for over the last, what, 300 years. Very conservative. They hate the New York crowd. They hate the London crowd and so on. So we had to come up with a plan, with a, with a way to show them that if they keep their strategy the way it is, with all the pending changes to legislation and the rise of genetically modified foods and the, you know, the rise of open grain trading, which they were trying to resist, what would happen to them? So I came up with this really diabolical plan. One of those crazy things that's either going to make you successful or is going to make you fail. So what I told the team is, okay, we're going to get them to understand that, we're going to get them to understand visually what the difference in strategies. And we were up against McKinsey for the project. We were up against I mean, all the big firms were going to be there, right? This wasn't a formal bidding, but we knew they were speaking to different firms for ideas. So we said we have to be different. We got them to, we've got to get them to understand this. They got to get, we've got to get them to understand this vision. And I was left to do to come up with the idea for the presentation. So what I said is, okay, let's do this. Let's use music videos to show them the the changes, right? So we'll get a music video. We'll we'll, we'll find an artist who over the last 10 or 15 years has not changed his or her style of um, style of music. And because she hasn't changed the style of music, she has not changed to the taste of the market, and she has not changed specifically to the taste of the market she's targeting. And we'll find another artist who has successfully reinvented himself or herself, and we'll contrast them. So we'll, we'll put together a video for, for one artist from 1994, 1995, 1996, 1997. I think it was 1994, 96, 98, or something like that. But basically, a 10-second clip 
on each year to show for the one artist that hasn't changed that you know as the crowd is changing as times are changing she looks the same or he looks the same for the other artist how they've managed to reinvent themselves like a chameleon and the message when I put is to be successful like this artist you've got to reinvent yourself even if it's painful and even if it is not what you do today so we put this together. It was diabolical, to say the least. I mean, you don't see consulting firms doing this. I mean, this is something like a design firm or an advertising agency would do this. We went in. Now, there was a problem. When the team first showed me the video, they made a mistake. What they did is, rather than showing, they didn't really understand it. They were, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't understand it, and they didn't. They for both artists, they didn't show how. For one artist, they showed how she hadn't changed, and for the other one, rather than showing how, how she had changed, they also showed how she hadn't changed. I saw that. I said, "You don't understand this. This is what you have to do." So they then came back with the new version. But what happened is the next day when they went in, they played when we were presenting to the clients. They played the wrong version. So obviously the clients didn't get it. Right? They thought this was one of the most ridiculous things they'd ever seen. And once the video was played, you could hear yeah, a pin drop. I mean, they either didn't understand this, which makes sense, they played the wrong video, or they didn't like it. So, you know, we just had to continue talking our way through and, you know, trying to build the exam. It didn't go very well, actually. It was a disastrous presentation, in my opinion. And I, I should have been more careful, you know. One thing I've learned since that session is you, no matter who is there, even if I'm the most senior person in the room, I will get up, I will check the PowerPoint myself, and I'll sit down. Even I just don't like delegating things to people because I've always realized people make mistakes, right? Or they don't understand, which is even worse. But when I was leaving, I did give the executive the, the original video. I said, look, I'm sure you're busy, but if you get a chance... The wrong video had been played. We didn't have a chance to replay it, but this is what the real one looks like. We never obviously got the work, but you know, a few months later, the guy called back and said, you know, he showed it to his daughter who was at Harvard, and she liked it. So it was very clever. Uh, it was really hedgy. You know, she explained it to him. It makes a lot of sense. We never won any work from those guys for that project, but we were called back for other projects. The point is, we didn't kill the relationship so badly that we couldn't win the work, right? The other thing I done, which was very unusual, is that um, if you look at most companies that do proposals, even at McKinsey and BCG, there's usually junior people working on proposals, and they usually follow this very generic format. You know, they put together a proposal, they call together paragraphs, ideas, slides, graphics, some a whole lot of other proposals, and they put together a generic-looking piece of nonsense. When I attended my first CEO meetings, I would look, I remember once very clearly, I was speaking to the chief procurement officer for a state-owned enterprise, and he was telling me, hey, look, Michael, here's all the proposals we received. I'm never going to read this. I'm going to send it to my team, and they're just going to go through a checklist to make sure everything is here. And it struck me very quickly that, you know, are senior people not reading proposals because they don't read it or because the proposals are so generic? You know, which one? What is cause and effect? And I came to the conclusion that people are not reading proposals because there's nothing valuable in proposals. So one of the things I did, which was very controversial at the time, is that I stopped writing these horrible generic proposals that you could put to that you could give to an analyst or a consultant to put together in one day. And I started telling my team that every proposal should be this carefully crafted letter anywhere from five to whatever number of pages where you you write out what you see are the issues drawing the insights of the partner that's one of the things i one of the reasons i don't like it when junior people do proposals because they can't draw in the insights of the partners even if the partner tells them put in these things the way the junior person interprets it is very hard it's, it's terrible it's like you know it's like 
it's like the head of Ferrari going to someone who's a car designer at, I don't know, Ford and telling them, this is what I want and hoping the Ford person can design the car. He cannot design the car. Right? So my view was a partner should only do proposals, which is a very controversial viewpoint at that time, which no one supported, right? So I said, fine, I'll do it. So I, a few clients I took, I said, okay, I went to meet the clients and said, okay, I'm not going to send you a proposal, I'm going to send you a letter of my thoughts. That's what it was called, a letter of my thoughts. One particular uh, telecoms client was trying to develop a strategy for Central Asia. And I wrote this very insightful letter to them, eight pages on what I think was happening, what I think my hypotheses are, what I think is happening in the industry, how I think they need to think this through, where I believe the competitors are going to play, why. And again, I was always saying, these are my thoughts, we need to verify these things, and I sent this off. And I remember the, the client said, okay, yeah, we'd like to meet you. And I, we came in, and she was there. And she had a team of analysts, I think they were, and she had some people from the finance team. They all had copies of the letter, and they all had, they had annotated parts. They had, these, they had these little note, sticky notes to point out things they wanted to ask questions. She said, look, I've got, we've got a lot of questions to ask you based on this letter, and thank you so much for putting the care into it. And they, we spent like an hour and a half discussing this letter. That one did work. I mean, we won that project. It was amazing, you know, to, to, to get a client... To, to to want you to help them without a proposal is quite impressive. So, we, so this idea of sending letters was something that uh, worked very well for us. And we started doing a lot more of it. I don't know if it still continues. Maybe some variation of it continues. But that's one of the things we did right. One of the things I did differently. The other thing I did differently was a, a policy I've had of calling it a shock and or tactics. And it comes from the idea of having proposals, right? If you think about it again, proposals are, tend to be very generic. You, you tend to... Um, you tend to assume what the client needs to select you and you send your proposal. Now, I found, I, even though McKinsey and BCG say they don't do proposals, they do it. Right? All firms do proposals, but I think the, the way you do proposals has to defer. The other idea I came up with was that um, while we should not write out genetic proposals, there should be letters, we should also consider bringing in I th what I call signing in experts. For example, on a particular project we were doing, we were trying to help a city which shall remain unnamed with the economic revitalization program before the Olympics, right? And it was not London, this was a long time ago, but before the Olympic Games. And we were up against McKinsey for this. Clearly it was going to be us and McKinsey. And if you look at the McKinsey Global Institute reports, they had worked with some of the most eminent minds in economics and finance, Nobel laureates. They had Nobel laureates on their team that they had put forward. So we couldn't match them, but I said that, look, we've got to think about this very carefully, right? So what I went into is I said, okay, let's look at the young stars in economics. The guys that are, you know, winning the, uh, this is called the Arthur Clarke or the Bates Clarke Medal of Economics, you know, most prom most influential economist on the age of 40 at MIT, at Stanford, Harvard. Let's bring them into our team and say, okay, if you want to win against other cities and be competitive, you have to do things differently. You can't have the same team that is advised every city because they will then give you a basically a rehash of what they gave everyone else. Maybe true, maybe not true, but I think there is some truth to that. So we assembled a team of outstanding young economists. Guys that, you know, the last 10 years have gone on to do very big things and we put them under our team. The policy of shock and awe was that you need to have every piece of, now I wouldn't say leverage, but every bit of useful information or influential people, and I mean influential, I don't mean politically, but influential in, th in terms of thought, to help you come up with the best idea. So the shock and awe tactic worked very well, and we used it in all proposals in the sense that, you know, 
don't go after don't go after small issues go after big issues whereby we can bring out our best ideas because we cannot we cannot help clients and influence clients to work with us if we if we're putting together these horrible proposals which i would never read so just forget them we should only go after things where we can write these well-crafted letters from partners that take time to prepare and where we can bring in some of the best thinkers we can bring around the firm it was a strategy basically of going after you know influential issues critical issues for clients things that would influence the the, the direction of the company for years to come the other thing that i had done um that was dangerous maybe is um you know once um i remember i was still a, not a very senior partner i was a junior partner at this point and we were in germany and we were i'm not going to name to give away too much details here but we were helping a multinational company a retailer understand how to target the large amount of uh, people that have been displaced as a result of the collapse of the soviet union and we're now moving into germany and how we could target them to shop and his, his team had commissioned all this research and you know the partner said you know why don't you go over there and um, help him understand the issues so i said fine no problem and it, so we arrive in this meeting room and he's got his team of analysts there and it's germany everything's very formal and so on which i could never really fit into and you know i say you know i'm not going to say his name but let's assume his name was hector hey hector how are you doing so you've got a team of analysts good okay we're not going to look at anything written we're going to look at it later i want you to does your team have a car to follow me i want everyone to get into their cars i want you to get into your car we're going to go out and we're going to spend a day in the field so i took him out and i took him to where these people were living you know i mean this was early 1990s uh, well not early mid 1990s uh, things were bad um, and i wanted to see i wanted him to see how the customers he wanted to target were actually living. I wanted him to speak to them. So we never told anyone who we were. We never told him, we never said he was the CEO of this you know, company. You never knew what could happen, right? But we went out and we spent a day with them. We had hot dogs. I mean, whatever Germans call it something different. They have a special name for this, um, for this um, sausages with curry and so on. I call it hot dogs. And we spent a day we t- talking to, cl- to potential clients, understanding their needs. We visited some of their houses. Unplanned, no media, obviously no media. And uh, just understand the customers and brought him back to the office. And, you know, we didn't even spend any time looking at the data. We just started brainstorming. This is what we see, right? What are our hypotheses? Why are we doing this? I mean, you can see very clearly these people don't even have, they cannot even afford their homes. So why are we offering mortgage products? Can we offer a mortgage product that allow them to afford their home? So no, I mean, what are we doing here, right? So that kind of debate, I mean, that was a dangerous move, I think, but it worked out very well. And the other thing I've done is, you know, always stuck to my values and, you know, principles. So hopefully, you know, this is a, a, I've done many sort of day in the lives of a partner and day in the life of a consultant. But people always ask me, you know, Michael, how did you move up consulting? You know, what were some of the decisions you made? And I thought this podcast could answer some of those things. I think the most important things to understand in this podcast is that there are, I mean, every partner you're going to meet has made mistakes. I mean, it's, it's the nature of the game. They're going to have they're going to have had their own version of the dark years. Maybe it didn't last twelve months, but it's going to last. It must have lasted a few months, three months to four months. And remember, dark years is relative. Someone who looks as if they are smoothly sailing through may be having a dark year. You don't know it. For example, a baker scholar who gets promoted every one year, six months, could be having a dark year because he's benchmarking himself against people who are promoted every one year. So for him, he's he's not cutting it. He's struggling. He doesn't know why he's struggling. So always remember, it's all relative. Do not compare people to yourself because they are not comparing themselves to you. But always remember this. You know, the the decisions and the experiences you've had when you were young are going to profoundly shape you.
and you need to use them as a strength. When people always talk to me, you know, why is your value system like this? I mean, I don't tell them about my experience when I was young, but it plays a major role in shaping me because I've seen what happens when, this, when, you know, when, when people abuse the value system or when allegations are made that you have abused the value system. In fact, the most important thing, the most important thing you want to do is not not break the system or the value system, but not be accused of breaking the value system. Accusations are enough to tarnish your reputation forever. So you mud sticks, as they say. So what you must do is you must make sure you're never in a position where people say that you know you've tarnished things. The other thing I want to point out is that if you look at my career, is that you know I didn't know what management consulting was when I started. I chose what I found interesting. There was a lot of luck involved, you know, picking physics, which gave me because I was good at it. It gave me the freedom to explore the the um, economics and accounting and management and so on. And I, and and to be honest, I mean, I have no friends up until this day from my physics class. All of my friends come from commerce, law, and so on, because I found those disciplines more interesting. The other one is you have to take risks, you know. At no point did I ask people, you know, can I do this? Will I do this? I just went to the person making the decision and said, okay, this is my situation. Can you help? You know, when I had the Bursa scholarship, a very bad decision, which I kicked myself on every day. Kick, you know, I should never have converted to a Bursa scholarship. I just went to the consulting firm and said, look, this is what my situation, you know, can you help me? And they did. They bought me out, you know. Um, and that was a great decision. Throughout the rest of my career, I never asked people for things. I sat down next to the partners, became very good friends with the partners. Until this day, I find it easier to make, to build relationships with much older, more senior people. When I was young, I used to call CEOs by their first name. 21 years old, I'll call a CEO by his first name. Even today, I still do it. Older people, 60 years old, I'll call them on a first name. Obviously, I'm, a, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be, but I do not allow hierarchy to get in the way. And the other one is the concept of taking charge. When someone tells me the career, they're struggling, they don't know what to do, I always think to the to myself, has this person actually given up and they're trying to justify it or they really don't know what to do? Because if I'm trying to change someone's perception who's given up, there's nothing I'm going to do there. This other concept where people say, you know what, I never went to a prestigious school, I didn't go to a target school. Well, I never went to a target school. In fact, a lot of people don't go to the target schools. I mean, you hear about the Harvard, Wattons and Stanfords and so on. But a lot of people don't go to target schools. I never went to a target school. I didn't even know what a target school is until I joined consulting and I went for all these, you know, recruitment events and people used to start using the word target schools. But the point is, if you're good at what you do and you find someone who pushes you towards consulting, that's all you really need, right? You will make mistakes. In fact, I'll tell you something now, you learn a lot by making mistakes. My biggest, the biggest mistake I see people making is that they don't use the opportunity of making mistakes as a chance to learn. I mean, I, I always think that that period when I, for like 11 to 13 months, depending on how you look at it, when my career was going nowhere and people were using the word dead man walking and direct quotation, I think I learned more than I've learned in my entire career. It really forced me to, re, to basically redesign myself. I had, to, I had to sit down and think, okay, why isn't this working? What's stopping me from doing a good job? You know, how do I build momentum? If consulting is a team sport and I have no allies, now how do I, how do I fix this, right? Now, once you start doing better, then ironic things happen. People then start working with you again. If you if you if they don't like you and you do bad, they'll just sort of all separate and leave you alone to be eaten by a shark. But as soon as you start firing on all cylinders again, people start supporting you because people want to win with winners. A. G. Laffley said that. You know, he had developed a strategy when he took over, when he retook over PNG. He said, "Win with winners. We will not work with retailers that are not going places. We will win with winners. We will do things 
that help retailers win if they have a winning strategy anyway. It's the same thing with people. If they see you're a winner, they will find whatever reason to justify working with you again. And to be honest, all these people who sort of... um, you know, left me alone when I was the dead man walking. Once my career started kickstarting again, I moved ahead very rapidly. They started wanting to work with me, and because they could see I was doing, you know, some remarkable things. I mean, I didn't, I didn't talk specifically about um, some other stories, but one particular story that stands out for me. Another heavily, um, um, I wouldn't say heavily, but highly risky strategy I followed is that I was like, you know, I tend to do a lot of finance projects for whatever reason. I was good at numbers because of my physics background. I could build these complicated models and so on. And I could see things that other people couldn't see in numbers. So anyway, we're doing this project for a, um, how much information can I give you? Let's just say it was a commodities company, right? And we were, they wanted us to come up with a new business model. Their business model was failing. And they said, you know what, there's a new era arriving and we want to be ready for it. And we were and we had we were well into this project. I mean we were midway through the project, right? And we were basically doing the analysis around the option. So I had come up with a different idea for an option. And it's not like I'd planned this thing. I was sitting there with the CFO, it was the evening and I was showing him some of the nut changes we had made and some of the assumptions we were building and he wanted an update. So I was and I was very, very wasn't very senior, I was not yet a partner, I was only a manager at this point, engagement manager. And I was talking out aloud. And it's one of these habits I have, you know, if I, my style is to build a very close relationship with the client so that when I talk out aloud, they don't start getting all excited. Hey, you know, this guy is saying these crazy things. They know I'm talking out aloud, so they're not going to, you know, take it out of context. So I was talking out aloud and I said, you know what, uh, let's just call up the CEO, the CFO, Matt. You know, Matt, what we need to do here is you need to lease this commodity. You need to stop selling. He said, what do you mean lease? That's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. We're not an aircraft company. And I said, well, think about it, right? This commodity, we know there's diminishing supply, right? We know that. We know it's very difficult to destroy this. It cannot. No alloy can be built out of this. Basically, when you build this commodity, you, it's, it remains in the system, right? Easy to track. You're building a system to track it. What if we lease the commodity? People never really own it. What if you lease the commodity, right? And he said, okay, that's a very interesting concept. You know, is there something you're working on? And I said, yes. Mistake right there. I shouldn't have said yes when we're not working on it. Le- you know, my communication skills had improved a lot since then. I mean, when I pulled the same stunt later on, a few years later, when the CFO asked me or the CEO asked me, are you working on this? I said, we are, we, are going to, we are busy looking at the option in more detail to decide if it's worth more analysis. Because what I had done is I'd committed the, the, the uh, team to doing an options analysis that may be ridiculous and may have embarrassed us or may have required more manpower than we actually committed to the project. And by the time I could you know, explain what had happened to the partner, the CFO was on the line talking to the partner, said, you know, he likes the idea, he discussed it with me. Luckily, I had a good partner, one of the guys who liked me, and he said, yeah, okay, sounds like a good idea. Just make sure that you do enough back-of-the-envelope calculations to make sure this makes sense, and let's talk about it the next morning. So the point is, it's another example of where I took risks and I just said it, you know, we got to lease the product. Now, we, we didn't end actually ended up leasing the product, but we built a business model very similar to mimic the attributes of leasing a commodity without actually leasing the commodity. You can't, I mean, it's not, really, it's not, a, it's not a commodity like wheat or something, but it's, it's kind of a commodity. But the point is you've got to take risks in your career. And I took a lot of risks. I mean, uh, another situation which stands out very clearly, and this one was could have could have been really bad. After I'd you know, fixed my career and so on, we were working on this really complicated financial model for, I think it was a, hard to describe them, they're a diversified company, 
But I suppose if you to really describe them, you could say they're, they're a manufacturing industrial company, right? We're working on this business model to show them how much inventory they need to have on hand. And what had happened is that the team that was building the model had decided that they would round down their numbers. Now, rounding down doesn't sound like a big problem, right? But when you're rounding down from 99 cents to, from let's say 199 to one dollar, you're basically cutting out a dollar. And when you're talking about billions of dollars, there's a billions of dollars of inventory that you're misrepresenting. It was a mistake on the side of the modeling team. I mean, I assume they wouldn't have done this correctly, but when I was checking the model late at night, I noticed that the roundups didn't make sense. So I called the partner the next morning and said, look, we've got a problem. The numbers we presented at the board meeting are not correct. They're off by a couple of billion, a couple of billion. I mean, the partner was very unhappy. I think it was the one time that he was, I, it's the one time I've ever seen him unhappy with me because we had a good relationship. He trusted me with a lot of things. But I can understand why because this was an important client to the firm. It was a very public project that we were doing. There's a lot at stake here, right? So he said, okay, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to go to the client. We have to explain this to them because the client is to take this to his board. Our client was, was the chief operating officer. So we had to explain to him, get him to understand, take it to the board. He said, and I said, okay, don't worry, I'll deal with it. He said, no, you are not going to deal with this. I will go deal with this. Now, many people would have been afraid and said, okay, let the partner go. I said, no, I'm going to go. I didn't tell this to the partner, but I said, okay, I'll meet you there. I ran, I mean, I literally ran out of the office, got into my car and I went. And it was quite a long drive. It's an hour drive to get to, this, to the offices because in the suburbs of the city. And my thinking was very simple. The partner doesn't know what happened, Right. The partner is going to go to the client and tell them that we made a mistake, right? I'm going to go to the client and say we made a mistake, but I'm going to present a way to fix it. So I went to the client and I went and I said, hey, you know what? Let's assume his name was Rob. Right? I said, hey, Rob, how are you doing? We have a chat. And I said, Rob, I want to point out something to you. You know, the numbers we presented, we, we gave you, uh, we put in an estimate that was incorrect. Uh, but in hindsight, I think it's not such a bad thing to do because what we can do is, I think we should tell the board that we use a low estimate here because they're rounding down. But what we need to do is that um, this is obviously wrong. So let's not kid ourselves. We made the wrong estimate, but the numbers have not been signed off. So why don't we do this, right? Since all the numbers have been rounded down, I mean, I worked out the percentages. Basically, been, the impact is a 10% lower number than it should be. Why don't we call this the low case, right? And we say, you know what, this is the low case, and we come up with a high case. And we come up with a, new, uh, a low case, a medium case, a high case. But let's not spin this. We'll tell the board that the numbers had an error in them in the way we rounded them down, right? We'll present the right numbers. We'll call that the, the middle case. And then we can also maybe just round up the numbers by 10% to give us the high case. So what was interesting in the way I handled this was not what I said, but the way I said it. No huffing and puffing, no, you know, holding my hands and apologetic. I just said, look, we made a mistake here. These things happen. We fixed the mistake. The mistake is 10%. The numbers we sent to the board are off by this amount. What I would say is that um, we've updated the numbers because we made a mistake in our calculations. And just be honest with them. They'll be happy with it. And this is the way we fixed it. Uh, and, and I sketched out how we're going to draw the slide. He said, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Not such a big deal. These things happen. And then the partner comes in and he says, uh, uh, you know, have you guys had a chance to speak? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, what have you discussed? And then Rob says, you know, Michael just telling me you guys made a mistake in the calculations. And he showed me how we can fix it. And he said, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the board isn't going to look at the pack anyway, you know, for, until about two weeks when they have the main board meeting. So you don't have to worry about it. Another important lesson in life is that 
I took a big risk here. I basically disobeyed the, the partner. If I had gone ahead and spoke to Rob, the, the COO, and he had uh, decided that um, you got unhappy and the situation became you know, catastrophic for the relationship, the partner could have always said, you know what, you did this. It was a risk, but I knew in my gut that I'm a better communicator than most people. I can explain this better. I know the numbers better than anyone else. So that if anyone can explain this correctly and get the client to understand it, I can understand. The partner couldn't do that. And the partner used to tell that story forever afterwards. You know, you know, there, you know, there was this time when we made this mistake on the project and you know, Michael drove, he beat me there, and he, he managed to find a way to get the client to understand that there was a mistake. He didn't sugarcoat it, but that the mistake can be used to maybe show one other scenario we want to run. And, you know, the client was very happy. It didn't even become, it, it did not even become an, an, an issue afterwards. I mean, the client was, it didn't even come up, you know, it was like a nothing for the client. The client says, yeah, sure, you made a mistake, you fixed it, so what's the problem? These things happen. It's not like it's the first mistake you've made. You've made other mistakes and fixed it. So it's another example of, you know, where you, you do something risky. And I always tell people that you've got to take risks, but you've got to take calculated risks. You've got to take risks where there's transparency. Let me explain what that is. Let's assume that um, I decided, I went to the partner and I told him, look, um, this happened. And the partner said, okay, I'm going to meet the client. You will not come. And I said, yes. And I still drove there, even though I admitted to the partner, I will not come. That is taking a non-transparent risk because I haven't laid all my cards on the table. What I did here is I told the partner, no, it's fine. I'll go ahead with you. And I'll, you know, if I get there, I'll, I'll, I'll just start introducing the problem to the client and then you can come in and explain what happened. Um, that's a transparent risk, right? Um, because I never said I wouldn't speak to the client. And non-transparent risks are what get you fired. When you do things that you said you wouldn't do, always make sure the risks you take are transparent. People know it's a risk and people are aware of what you're doing. When people don't know what you're doing, that's a problem. And this was a dangerous one. I mean, I went there ahead. I said I would give him a summary. I never explained what that summary was. I spun it whichever way I want. And to be honest, it took me five minutes to explain the problem to the client. Five minutes. One of the most contentious issues I've ever had to deal with with a client because the problem here was that the firm was, you know, all up in arms about what was going on. So I dealt with it, fixed it, and moved on. The partner was quite happy. He built that into a storyline about me for the rest of my career about how I had managed these problems and so on. Now, this podcast is going on quite long, and I don't want to sit here and discuss different stories and anecdotes from my past. The point I want to make is that, remember, your values shape who you are. Take control of your career, and you have to take risks. To move ahead of the pack, you have to take risks, but make sure they are transparent risks. As always, I mean, I'm very happy to answer any questions you have, so feel free to post them. Thank you.